0: If you have your Bible, then go ahead and grab it. We are going to be in the book of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 31 through 37. We're going to worship our, our Savior this morning. We're going to do that through looking at His Word. So Luke chapter 4. And what we're, going to, what we're going to see in this passage today is what happens when Jesus walks into a religious establishment. And what you see throughout the Gospels is that when Jesus walks in a room, the norm tends to dissipate. The norm begins to break down. Whatever room Jesus sets his foot in, things begin to change. Lives are transformed. Healing takes place. Salvation comes. Traditions die. Sinners are redeemed. The needy rescued. And we're looking at a moment in the life of Jesus from, from the beginning of his earthly ministry. And in this story, we're not only going to see our Savior on display, but we're also going to hear a warning for all of us in a local church that, that Satan is real and he is not scared whatsoever of entering a church, any location that's dedicated for the worship of God. But what we will see clearly is that he will flee before the face of Jesus. And we're going to see that very clearly in Luke chapter 4. So hopefully by now you are in Luke chapter 4, and again verses 31 through 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. And Lord, as we transition to a time where we worship you through hearing your word preached, I pray that that's exactly that. We would hear your word preached. That you would speak. That you would show up in a in a powerful, spectacular way. Because you're you are with us. You promise to be with us. You say that your word is not going to return void, but it will accomplish everything you set it out to accomplish. So Lord, we're trusting your spirit to move, to open our eyes, and to transform us to be made more like the Savior that we see on display in this text. Lord, we need you for that. And we pray all this for your glory and in your name. Amen. So Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he goes down to... Capernaum. Now going down to Capernaum is, is literally what you do. Because Capernaum is, is, a, is a little city. It's a village on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And so travelers to go to Capernaum are literally going downhill to Capernaum. They're going down a slope. And he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach them on the Sabbath. And what, what we see here is not something that's really unheard of in this day, Jesus was, was seen as a traveling preacher. And so what would often happen is when a traveling preacher would ride into town, when they would come in, the synagogue would, would open itself up. Hey, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what the Lord is teaching through you. And so they would give whatever the preacher was, whoever he was, an opportunity to speak. And you see this often in the traveling ministry of Jesus. When he rides into a town, when he comes in, he often goes to the synagogue to the Jewish people in order to preach. He goes teaching them, performing miracles, and ushering in the kingdom of God. And in fact, he, he states this purpose in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. He says that he was sent primarily, in fact, he says only, to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't often reach out to Gentiles. In fact, you will see throughout the Gospels that he has a heart for the nations but his primary responsibility is to the people of Israel. And so it shouldn't be surprising for us, knowing his mission, that the first place he goes is to a synagogue. And the people are, are listening to him, and they're, they're surprised. And they're amazed at what they're hearing. They've, they've never heard someone teach in this manner before. His words carried with it an authority it's completely foreign to them. The, the traveling preachers that they've heard in the past didn't speak in this way. Their, their elders, their priests, the people that often teach them, they would teach the Word of God that's, that's good and right. But Jesus spoke in a way that, that carried authority. That was unique. And they recognized this as He begins to teach. It's, it's almost like a, a coach on a team. Right, the, the coach, if he's a good coach, right, generally doesn't need to, to yell at his players in order to get them to react. In fact, I, I think it's a mark of a good coach to not yell. <laughs> that you don't have to raise your voice. And if you think of kind of some of the, the higher-up coaches, somebody like uh, Nick Saban, somebody like Dabo Sweeney, right, these guys, the, the players can be in the locker room making jokes, cutting up, staff can be everywhere, but as soon as that coach walks in, everything changes. Everyone straightens up. Why? Because there's, there's an authority that just, that just surrounds the coach. That the coach is not the biggest, <laughs> he's not the strongest, he's not the fastest, but when he speaks, he conveys an authority that's tangible that everyone else present instantly recognizes. Now, Jesus is infinitely greater than any coach, but as soon as he opens his mouth, as soon as he begins to speak, the entire synagogue recognizes that there was something different about this man. Their teachers could explain the words of the law, but Jesus wrote it. There's a great difference between talking to someone who knows a lot about a book And speaking to the author of that book. So he has an authority that they instantly recognize. And they're not the first to do it. They're not the only ones to do it. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. We see this refrain throughout the sermon that that Jesus will say, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is directly challenging the teaching that they've grown up hearing. Now, make sure you understand that when Jesus says this, he's not challenging Scripture. When Jesus speaks about Scripture, he'll say, it is written. It is written, and then he'll quote the Scripture. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he says what? You have heard that it was said. And so Jesus is challenging. He's he's really, he's not contradicting Scripture, but he's correcting the misconceptions that surround it. Jesus was correcting the the faulty teaching by demonstrating throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and even we'll see in this text, he'll show the true intentions of the law. An example of this, think back to the Sermon on the Mount, think of the instance of murder. So the law of God prohibits the taking of another human being's life. Pretty cut and dry, pretty clear. But what Jesus shows us is that the true intention of that law goes far deeper than just the prohibition of murder. But he shows us that the true intention of the law is to bring freedom. It's to bring freedom and to show that we are to love every single individual because they're made in the image of God. And so if we, we do not kill someone, so we do not commit murder, but we still hate someone, we're not free. We're not fulfilling the true intention of the law. You're still guilty for harboring hate for another individual who is made in the image of God. So Jesus does not correct the law, but he does correct our misunderstanding about the law. And what happens at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you go to the end of Matthew 7, you'll see that the crowd is astonished. They're amazed. Why? Because he has an authority. Authority that's different from the scribes. That they recognize something that is different about this man. And the crowds in Capernaum, the crowds in the synagogue recognize this authority as well. Now it's it's crucial to understand that, that simply being amazed by the teaching of Jesus is not the same as salvation. There are plenty of individuals who believe that Jesus is a moral teacher, but certainly do not submit to him as their Lord. Did you know that it's, it's possible to try to live a moral life, even a moral life by the standard of Jesus, and still not be a follower of Christ? Do you know that that's possible? And we need to make sure that we understand that salvation comes only by repenting of our sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension into heaven. This is the way of salvation. It's not simply attempting to be moral. We need to understand this. Because there's a, there's a massive difference between the two. To misunderstand morality with salvation is not just poor theology. There is an eternal life and death difference between the two. And so the, the crowd recognized that he had an authority, but this is not the same as believing in Jesus. Being amazed at his teaching and attempting to live a moral life is not the same as submitting to him as Lord. You can sit in a church pew all your life. You can nod along to every moral teaching and still Be lost. The crowd notices a difference and they were only amazed externally. But what we see is not only did his teaching have an authority, but he possessed a power that changed everything. That changed absolutely everything. And we see in verse 33 That while Jesus is teaching, we meet a man. A man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, pause and think about that for a second. Where was this demon possessed man? He was in the synagogue amongst the crowd. In the synagogue, listening to Jesus' teaching. And do you know who noticed him as a demon-possessed man up until the moment he cries out? Absolutely no one. Absolutely no one. Does that surprise you to think about that a man that is possessed by a demon was present and even perhaps actively participating with a crowd who were present to worship God? By all external accounts, this man was religious. He was present on the Sabbath as any good Jew was supposed to be. He was listening. But he has a demon. We cannot be confused about being religious, about being spiritual, and confuse that with conversion. This is prevalent all over our culture. We live in a culture that breathes the air of spirituality but that does not mean salvation satan was actively working in this synagogue and no one noticed and the crowd is amazed at what happens next think about that They, they they probably knew the man i've seen him here i know him he's a nice guy he's always been nice to me he was nice to my kids but yet he still had a demon. No one suspected him. No one pulled Jesus aside and said, Hey Jesus, I I know you're teaching, but we've got this guy that's been coming for the last couple weeks. It's kind of sketchy. He might have a demon just in case something happens. You need to be aware of this. It's almost as if Satan works close to the people of God, even among the people of God, just to stir up trouble. After all, a, a kingdom that is attacked from the outside can be defended. But a kingdom that's attacked from within can be dismantled with very little notice. And I think, honestly, the last, <laughs> the last 200 years of American Christianity have been a solid demonstration of just that. We want to fit with the culture, so we'll discard the authority of the Bible. We want to fit with the culture, so we'll give this up. We're going to let emotions dictate. If that's what you feel, if that's what you like, that's fine. you don't like this church, we'll put another church just down the street. It'll have this different type of music. Maybe you'll like that, and we can hop back and forth to one that fits my preferences. All the while never noticing the erosion of biblical Christianity. Even in a local church, I'm convinced that Satan specializes in using individuals who are outwardly moral, they're nice, they're kind, but are still dead in their trespasses and sins to stir up contention. They may may even think that they're, they're doing the Lord's work. I'm fighting the good fight by not letting this issue die. I'm fighting for biblical fidelity by upholding this tradition. Francis Schaeffer, in a sermon entitled The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, reminds us that it's possible to be doing the Lord's work in our own flesh. We may on the outside appear as though we're being successful. Maybe we have a huge event, we have a large group of people who attend. But if doing good for the Lord is not first accompanied by the power of the Spirit of God, it will not be successful at least not by our God's definition of success. I've heard David Platt before say that the the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel in our day and age is the people of God attempting to do the work of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. We are to wait on the Lord's power. Think back to the book of Acts. They saw Jesus resurrected. They didn't immediately go out. Why? Jesus said, wait. Wait. Wait for what? Wait for the power of the Spirit to come upon you, and then go. We are to wait for the power of the Spirit and then work. An event that saw three, four, five hundred individuals pass through it may be viewed as a success in our culture, but if not one gospel conversation takes place, was it really a success? I'm not saying conversion, right? Salvation is of the Lord. God will save whenever He so chooses. But if we don't have one gospel conversation, is it really that successful? Satan is content to leave us pursuing the Lord's work in our own flesh. Because he knows that pursuing the Lord's work, if it's not the Lord's way, accompanied by the Lord's power, if it's in our own flesh, It won't be that far of a leap to begin doing Satan's work. This man was outwardly religious. He did not bring any suspicion to those who were present. And yet, he was possessed by a demon. Church, we cannot settle for outwardly religious. We must pursue being a church that is characterized by a genuine, deep affection for Jesus that is based upon a correct understanding of the gospel. You falter if you lose either of those two ideas. Cold, dead orthodoxy, you've checked all the boxes, but you don't love Jesus. Or pure emotion that is not rooted in truth can both be used and has been used greatly by Satan to wreak havoc. And this is why we take church membership so seriously. That we want individuals who are members to be genuinely converted followers of Christ. That's why we take it so seriously. And there comes a moment in verse 34... When this demon, listening to Jesus, simply cannot take it any longer. He hijacks the man's vocal cords. He begins to speak through the man. And you can imagine that at this moment, everybody's kind of on the edge of their seat. They're listening to Jesus. And somebody calls out. You can imagine a great hush. It just kind of takes over the room, right? Whoa, what is going on? Everybody's kind of waiting, stunned. Who would make such an outcry? Look at verse 34. He says, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see this? He, he speaks in the plural. He speaks in the plural. Did you notice that? But, but in verse 33, there's only one demon mentioned. So not only is the demon speaking for himself, but he's speaking for, for demons everywhere. He's representing everybody, and we, 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 we have a few ideas present that we need to see. This demon speaking on behalf of other demons. We need to look at what he says. First, demons know who Jesus is. He recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons are are supernatural, spiritual creatures. And so they, perhaps supernaturally, spiritually, recognize Jesus. Long before any human understands this is the Son of God, demons are like, yeah, that's the Son of God. That's the Holy One of God. They understand His true identity long before any human will. So not only do they recognize who Jesus is, secondly, they understand that they are a vanquished enemy. There is no fight here. The question is not if they're going to be punished for rebelling against God. The demons not square up, Jesus, let's go, let's see who, who wins this boxing match. The question is, is the time now? Have you come to destroy us? Is our time up? And I know it's coming, I know it's coming, but is it Now? Are we out of time now? And as Christians, that should bring us great comfort. <laughs> Christians are, are in a fierce war. Every second of our lives, we are in a battle. Not against flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle that we cannot even see. Demons are, are not to be trifled with. They are stronger than the, Excuse me, they are stronger than you are on your own. But they are a vanquished foe. They are defeated. And they know that there is a day of reckoning coming. And not only do they know that there is a day of judgment coming, but they know their judgment will come from the lips of Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? Jesus, is now the moment that we're going to be punished. And do you notice the the contrast even in the description? The demon is an unclean spirit, and Jesus is the Holy One of God. The demon is unclean. Jesus is holy. He is morally clean. He is pure. Our Lord has not a trace nor a stain of sin. He is holy, and even the demons recognize this. And as the, the crowd stand amazed, how does Jesus react? How does Jesus react? He's not caught off guard. He's not taken back. He's not startled. Oh my goodness, let me collect my thoughts here and figure out what I'm going to do." He gives a command. He gives a command, "Be silent and come out of him." And the demon submits. How could Jesus rebuke a demon like this? Just speak a word and the demon responds. And Simply because he alone has all authority to do so. The authority that, that the crowd recognized in his teaching goes far deeper than just his teaching. He has all authority because he's God incarnate. He tells the demon to be silent. Hey, shut your mouth. He doesn't want the crowds to to spread around that he's the Messiah this early on. We've heard this before. In fact, I think I've even said this in a sermon before. Jesus is not interested in fulfilling any misconceptions about what the Messiah came to do. He's not a political leader. He's not starting a revolution to take out Rome. He came... To die as an atoning sacrifice for sin. That was what he came to do. To purchase for himself a people redeemed by his blood. And no demon's going to stand in the way of that. And the demon does not argue against Jesus. There's no fight here, there's no debate. Jesus gives a command and he obeys. Now he does attempt to have the last laugh. He throws the man down in their midst. Violently. He maybe wants to to kill the man. If I can't have him, you can't have him. Maybe he's just trying to to injure him so that the man forever remembers his, his time of being possessed. But Jesus is not going to allow this. This man is thrown down, verse 35 says. He came out of him, having done him no harm. Do you see the heart of Christ on display in this moment? His concern for the well-being of this man. Not only does he ensure that the demon is cast out, but he protects him. He makes sure that he is uninjured in the process. Jesus shows his his love and his mercy by delivering the man not only from the demon, but protecting him from bodily harm. You see, when Jesus walks in a room, things change. When Jesus walks in, lives are transformed, broken hearts are mended, Sinners are made saints. Slaves are adopted as sons and daughters of God. When Jesus walks in the room, the religious are made very uncomfortable in his presence. The status quo shifts and true worship begins. So, how does this take place in our our local church? How does Jesus walk in the room nowadays? It's through primarily the faithful exposition of the Word of God. Jesus walks in every time the Word of God is taught faithfully. In a Sunday school classroom, in a sermon, in a song, Jesus walks in when His Word is preached and taught and applied clearly. Is that what you expect when you meet Jesus? Not only at the, the moment of salvation, right? We we expect something spectacular at the moment of salvation. What about every other day of your life? Do you expect Jesus to do the spectacular? Do you actually believe that he can not only transform your difficult workplace, but also your sinful attitude about your workplace? That He can work on your heart and do something amazing just as much as changing the circumstances? Or do you expect Him to simply maintain things because that's the way we've always done them? Or do you expect Him to work in ways that you could never have even dreamed of? Are you consciously living before the face of God are you going through the routine of religiosity? Of sitting in a pew, of being moral. But you don't know this Jesus. And we cannot be content to, to strive to be successful for the Lord in our own flesh. And we cannot be successful for the Lord if we are not pursuing His glory above all else. We can't. It won't. Jesus walked in the synagogue not only to to teach with authority, they recognize that, but to demonstrate clearly for all to see that he is the one who possessed all authority. And he came to, to show his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace by delivering this man and it's that same love that same compassion that led him to the cross it's that same love for you have you met this jesus do you know him do you believe that it was out of love and compassion for sinners that jesus went to the cross do you believe that that he cares about us even now That He he not only loves us, but He genuinely likes us? That in the midst of our sin, even now, the thing we've done for the thousandth time that we just cannot get over, that Jesus cares? That He's with us? That He's not like us, that when we've been crossed for five, ten, a hundred times, we finally just kind of stiff arm the individual, just stay at a distance? That God doesn't do that. That in our struggling, in our suffering, in our sin, God doesn't say stand over there. He comes in and brings us closer. So that we can sing, our sins are many, but His mercy is more. That His mercy isn't on display by keeping you at a distance, but bringing you close. That He genuinely cares and loves you. And you can run to him in your sin, in your struggle, in your frustration, in your discouragement. That God says, come here. And embraces us and says, I'm not letting you go. Do you know this Jesus? Is this the Jesus you know? If so, we should we should have a reaction. Like we see in verse 36 and 37. They were all amazed and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits and they come out and then look at this. And reports about Him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Do reports about what Jesus did in your life go out to the different regions of your workplace? Does what Jesus did did in your heart permeate your household? The conversations that you have. Are they filled with talking about Jesus because what he did for you was so amazing, you cannot be quiet about it? Jesus has all authority, and yet he cares and loves us. May we be a church that is characterized by doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way and by submitting our lives to the Jesus who changes everything when He walks in the room. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your love and mercy and grace on display in Your, in your protection, in Your caring about this man. Outwardly religious, but yet demon-possessed. And Lord, I pray that in, in this church, Lord, that we would have eyes to see that we would get away from a, a superficial spirituality, a morality, and begin to love Jesus, to come to Jesus who is ready with His arms open to receive us and to love us. God, we need You. We pray that You would do the spectacular in this church, in our lives, in our houses, in our workplaces, in our schools, and that we would do your work in your way, not for our own glory, but for yours. God, we need you. We desperately need you. It's in your son's beautiful name I pray. Amen.